and welcome to week two of our uncontainable vision series where we try to understand what it is God would have for us as a church and to stretch us beyond where we could ever possibly go before. There is a, a story in the Bible of a father who has a son. And this son is, is possessed by a demonic spirit. And this demonic spirit, he will cause the son to be, to be deaf and, and mute. He'll throw him to the ground. He'll be in convulsions. Could you imagine what that would be like? Could you imagine what it would feel like to have someone you love, to see someone you loved, be gripped by something outside of themselves and to do things that they couldn't possibly imagine doing? Well, his father, in desperation, seeks out the followers of Jesus. He seeks out the disciples of Jesus, and he says, could you pray, and could you see my son free? And the Bible in Mark chapter 9 tells us they tried and failed, and, and then the man sought out Jesus. And he goes to Jesus, and he says, look, I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they couldn't, and Jesus says, unbelieving generation, how long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. He's kind of going, come on, this is not that difficult. And the father brings the, the son there and immediately the boy goes into a convulsion and, and Jesus looks at the father and he says, how long has he been like this? And the father says, since childhood. He's often thrown him into the fire or, into, or the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, don't you get the cry of a father here? If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus, in the words after that, he says, if you can, he said, everything is possible for one who believes. It's like this father's coming to Jesus. He recognizes that he has power of some sort. And he says to him, well, look, could you give me a little relief? Could you just do something? I don't want to ask too much. I don't want to bother you. Just a little something will be okay. In our series, the first thing we've done is we've said, let's define our purpose. It's very simple. It's helping people become total followers of Jesus Christ. It's the mission that we're on as a church. It's the purpose. It's the reason why we are. And the way that that is done, according to Matthew 28, as we learned last week, was we baptize and teach people. We see people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They believe in him and are baptized, which is a public expression of what has happened inwardly. And secondly, we go on and we teach people. We teach one another. We help each other to obey Jesus and the words that he said. We've realized that in our city, in the region of Wellington, there is 450,000 people who don't know Christ, who are lost. And we have this crazy idea that maybe, just maybe, we could see 1% of those people baptized in the next five years. That's 4,500 people reached for Jesus Christ, baptized in five years. That's by the end of 2021, if you kind of don't know how long, far, way, far, how far away five years are. Why was that so difficult? 
Why are we doing this? You know, it's not without warning. We've had, over the past number of years, really interesting moments in in prayer times and open worship nights and services. We've had prophetic words people have shared in a variety of places. Uncontainable waves of God's work coming out from the street has been a continual theme. Seeing people's lives transformed and impacted in the city. Words like tsunami, deep flowing rivers have been expressed many times and on separate occasions as a common theme. And we just have this sense, no, no, this conviction that this is the heart of God. Why? Because any word of a person that is shared must line up with the Bible because we know that the Bible always wins. And last week we looked at some of the biblical realities that we have which reinforce our conviction that God would have us baptize and reach many people over the next five years. It's because we believe and we see in the Scripture that one, the church is uncontainable. The church is uncontainable because Jesus Christ is the one who builds the church and he is uncontainable. The gospel is uncontainable. Because the gospel spreads in power. The harvest is uncontainable because we learned in the Bible that there are more people who are ready to hear the good news of Jesus than there are people prepared to share it. And the power of God is uncontainable. It's uncontainable because God is active in this world, hovering over the lives of people, helping them to come to understand that there is a God in heaven who loves them, who has created them, and wants them to live their purpose-filled life as with Him as Lord. All that, well and good. Let me tell you what goes on in my mind. This will never happen. How? What? Yeah. Uh, in fact, let me tell you exactly what happened last Sunday. So I was driving home. What have you done? You've just set everything up to fail. Closely followed by, oh yeah, it's just a leadership tool. You know it's that one. Set an aspirational goal and leverage that to change a bit of culture. It's all about pride. Imagine the story the street can tell if this happened. It won't really happen. Just keep doing what you're doing. I don't know about you, but that's what happened in my head. And yet, my prayer today is the prayer the father of the demonized, oppressed, limited, speechless, deaf boy prayed. I believe. Help my unbelief. When I look at the Bible, when I look at the call of God in our lives, when I look at the uncontainable resources of heaven that you and I as followers of Jesus Christ has been given, I believe. I believe that there is no reason whatsoever why God would not move in and through his church, capital C, to reach many, many more people for Christ in our nation like he is in other nations. I believe without a shadow of a doubt that that is possible. I believe that theologically. Help me overcome my practical unbelief. There's my prayer that I've found myself praying this week. It's time for us as a church to step into a new level of effectiveness for the gospel.
To believe that God can and actually will use us for more than we could ever dare to dream or imagine. This means you and I will do whatever it takes to reach people and to see them live as they were created, to live with Jesus Christ as Lord. This means we'll engage in the prayer battle in our own lives to start with. And last week as we've been praying, Lord, break my heart for the things that break yours. What must change in me for me to be used? And what must grow in us for us as a church to become that church that God would use? It means we need to consider the street as significantly larger than what it is. That's why we're looking at things like multi-services, multi-sites scattered around the region. So there's maximum opportunity to reach people for Jesus. Because remember, we're not a cruise liner, we're a fishing boat. And a fishing boat goes to where the people are as we create room to make more disciples. So how are we doing this? How do we make this happen? To do our part, to make it happen, there are three messages we're going to introduce into the landscape of the Street City Church. Three invitations that describe every person's journey with Christ. Three invitations that then shape our attitudes and empower our actions. Three things that help us understand what it is we're called to. And these three are very simply, just as an overview this morning, one, come as you are. Come as you are, it's the only way to meet Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ loves you, and he loves to meet the real you. No mask, no pretense, you, just as you are. The street is to be a place of honesty and authenticity where everyone is welcome. Secondly, be transformed. As you encounter God and you discover true life, you see, knowing Jesus changes you. When you come to know him, his love empowers us to put our old life behind us and experience the freedom that comes from living for him. And this is something that we do in community. We help each other to become more like Jesus every single day. And thirdly, to make a difference in your world. You see, as God transforms us to be more like Jesus, we demonstrate his love and we share his gospel through our words and our actions. And each one of us has a part to play in making an eternal difference in our world. So for this week, come as you are. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? Imagine emblazoned across the front of this building, come as you are. Imagine written over the front of every home where there is a life group or something hosted by you, come as you are. Imagine over top of every single one of us, inscribed, come as you are. Imagine indelibly imprinted on your heart, come as you are. No matter who you are, This is the only way to meet Jesus. Let me illustrate what this means in a a story which we find in John chapter 8. And let me illustrate what this looks like 
to truly come as you are. John chapter 8 verse 2 says this, At dawn, he that is Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Imagine you're in the crowd. It's a cool morning. The words are crisp, just like the air. And you're enjoying listening to Jesus. You love hearing him teach. You've followed him at a distance. And the things that he say always grip your heart. They're interesting. They're exciting. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this wonderful time with him, there is a disruption. And there's a bunch of angry men dragging a woman. And as they drag her into the middle of the crowd, they put her standing right in front of Jesus. And they say, you hear these words, Jesus, she was caught in adultery. She deserves to be stoned. What are you going to do about it? What are you thinking? What goes through your mind as you see her standing there? Who is she? What's her background? What assumptions have you made about her as you look at her? Because everybody has. Maybe you're thinking, well, she deserves it. If she's sleeping around, she's got it coming to her. Maybe you are looking at her going, this just feels all wrong. This just seems really unjust. And Where's the guy? Maybe you're standing there going, oh my goodness, this is so last millennium. Can't believe they're still pulling people out for sleeping around. You find yourself in that moment going, I wonder how she got there. And as you look at her, you was she so broken? And was this likely to be her final mistake in a sorry life? Maybe, maybe she was so lonely. Maybe she'd compromised herself in an endless pursuit to find happiness. Maybe a scheming man had lured her into having a one-night stand. Do you know, we actually have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what really happened, nor does it tell us what choices she made that led her to this place. All we know is that she was standing, accused and vulnerable, in front of a judgmental crowd and in front of Jesus. So what did he do? He stood up. He said, let any of you who is without sin 
be first to throw a stone. Then he stooped down and wrote on the ground again that this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older one first, then the younger. Till only Jesus was left standing with the woman. Interesting, isn't it? With one question, Jesus cleared the accusing crowds away. He had cleared away all opinions. He'd cleared away prejudices. He'd cleared away judgment. He'd cleared away hatred. All that was left was him and her. She was about to meet him. And he looks at her and he says, Woman, where are they? Where are the ones who accused you? Has no one condemned you? And she turns to him and she says, No one, sir. And out of his mouth comes these words. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You're standing in the crowd. You weren't expecting that. You're standing in the crowd. You're expecting religion to condemn. You're expecting holy people to look down on others. And what comes out of the mouth of one saying, you know what? I don't condemn you either. How? It's this wonderful, radical gift of God called Grace. Jesus in that moment gave grace. He said, I don't condemn you. But he also gave truth. Go and sin no more. He and those two statements put together this incredible fact of grace and truth. And I love the fact Jesus didn't sit down with her and say, Well, look, before I kind of you know adjudicate, let's go over your past. Let's start at the beginning and go all the way through and see what's led you to this point. No, no. He just looked at her and he said, you know what? I want to pour grace and truth into your life right now and give you the dignity of being able to choose where you go from here. Grace is the favor and the delight of God. It's the right of every person because Jesus Christ on the cross became sin for us so that we can become right with him and have a relationship with him. And by choosing him, by choosing truth, we can walk in the freedom of grace. See, here's the thing. Grace without truth would be deceitful. You know, Jesus could have gone to her and could have said, I don't condemn you, full stop. And that would have changed nothing. Or he could have left the I don't condemn you and just gone, Go and sin no more. And that would have been truth without grace. And that would be condemning. You see, we find so often in our Christian world that we, we pendulum swing from one to the other. Sometimes we're all about grace. You know, come as you are and we will take you just as you are and we'll leave you that way. Or we swing the other way. And we go, you've got so much to sort out. You're an absolute walking sinful mess in this condemnation. 
You know, the beauty of this is that Jesus Christ put together grace and truth. No surprise. That's who he is. In John chapter 1, it says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to know the glory of God? You want to know the the representation of the character of God? It's summed up really in those two things, grace and truth. But there's more to it than that. You see, those actions need to be framed somehow. And there is an attitude that Jesus had. And we find that in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 to 38, where it says this, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And when he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, ask the Lord of the harvest to therefore send out workers into his harvest field. Compassion is what Jesus had. He looked across the crowd and he saw the crowd for who they really were. He didn't see the the masks that we put up. He didn't see the pretense that we put up. He didn't see the, I will make sure that I am giving the impression that I'm all together. He saw through it. And as he saw through it, the Bible tells us that he was filled with compassion. Now what that means is this. He had this deep desire to alleviate suffering caused by sin and separation in the lives of other people. He had this ability, because he was God, to see people for who they really were. And he saw when, in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says this, The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. He knew who the enemy really was. The enemy is the thief. Now, here's the thing. So many times, as followers of Jesus, we misidentify the enemy. And there are too many stories of churches around the world who have identified the enemy as people. Because you think differently to me, you're the enemy. Because you behave differently to me, you're the enemy. Because you have a different philosophy to me, you're the enemy. Because you have a different religion, you're the enemy. Because you have a different culture, you're the enemy. And Jesus said, they're not the enemy. The enemy steals and kills, and destroys. The enemy is the enemy. Satan himself, who says, I am going to do everything I can to steal, to kill, to destroy. And I will do that by holding people under bondage. I'll do that by holding people in sin. I'll do that by making sure people feel condemned and feel guilty. I'll do that by making sure people can change the rules in their life so that they'll reinterpret what's right and what's wrong. doesn't matter. I'll do all of that stuff because I want one thing I want to do. I want to make sure people don't know life and life to the full. And the Bible tells us that life to the full is life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he created us. Because you and I have been created to enjoy a relationship with him. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And life is to live with him and in him. And if we are to be a come-as-you-are church, 
We will be a compassionate church filled with grace and truth. If you and I are to become as you are people, we will be filled with compassion, delivering grace and truth to everyone we meet. So what does this look like now? You and I don't know people who walk through the doors of a church service. We probably don't fully know people who even walk into our own homes. I'm sure we don't know, really, people who are in our life. But we take cues and we make assumptions. We read things as we see them and the dangerous thing is then we'll act on that. Because the potential to be wrong is greater than the potential to be right when it comes to assumptions. And our responses will be shaped by those assumptions. Let me give you an example. Just look around you at the moment, in this room right now. And look at all the people that are in here. Now, if I was to ask every single one of you to describe the people in this room there would be a variety of responses based on your assumptions. Some of you would say, and I get this relatively regularly, oh yeah, the street, you're simply a white middle class church. You're an altogether church. People here at the street, you've got everything together, therefore I don't fit in. That's an assumption. Who are we really? Let me give you what I see in here. And this is based, I I have the privilege of kind of a, a front row pastoral seat. But just to be clear, I'm not giving this like what I see right here, right now. This is slightly theoretical, but based on reality, just so when I make this list, you don't feel uncomfortable. But let me tell you what is in this room. I see people in this room who are incredibly gifted doing really well in life. I see people in this room who are excited about the next stage of life. I see people in this room who are making the most of the opportunities they have and they're enjoying it all. I see brokenness in marriages, in families, in singleness. I see mental health challenges. I see special needs I see gender and sexuality identity differences. I see anxiety. And I see fear. I see people living under the weight of lies that they cannot break free from. I see health issues. I see business owners who are stressed and concerned. I see people living under the shadow of traumatic past experiences that shapes everything about who you are. I see people searching for God. I see people who have convinced themselves that to attend church is all they need to do to be right with God. I see people who are ready to surrender themselves to Christ. I see young believers still trying to figure out if this Christian life is worth it. I've seen growing believers who are secure but wondering if they have anything to offer. I've seen maturing believers who know and love Jesus. 
You know, over the years, the church has been accused of demanding that people who don't know Jesus live and behave and act like they do. And the tragedy of that is this. When a person walks into the community of the church, having been drawn by the Holy Spirit so they can hear the message of grace and of truth, when the community of the church turns around and makes them feel second-rate and unwanted because their life doesn't stack up, it's a travesty of grace. If we're a come-as-you-are church, we will welcome any and every person who is on their journey toward Christ. Come-as-you-are inspires awareness that we'll always be compassionate to everyone so they can hear the message of grace and truth so they can meet Jesus. And it starts in this room and it influences our entire life. So what would it look like? How does it start with me? And how does it start with you? If we're a come as you are church, whether you come to a church service or to a life group, let me give, share this verse with you. And I, I think this kind of reflects something of the spirit of what might happen here. It's found in James chapter 5. It says this, Is any among you in trouble? Let them pray. Anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Any of you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Here's, here's the point. If we're a come-as-you-are people, that means we come with no mask. You see, the thing is, and let me be a little open here, I have a habit of making sure you see the nice nick, because right? the other nick's not that good. And so I'll, I'll come and I want to make sure that you know things seem to be all pretty well together. But you know what? You do the same thing. Because when we're with other people, it's, it's a scary place to be, to be a little open. And yet what James is suggesting is this. If you're a community framed with compassion, full of grace, and full of truth. Is any among you in trouble? Let them pray. I have the sneaking feeling we'd be praying for each other a lot more if we were that. If we're a community which is framed with compassion and full of grace and full of truth, we'd be rejoicing in the things that God has done. Is any of you happy let them sing songs of praise. I wonder if some of us would sing a little louder if we came as we are. I wonder if that uncontainable feeling of joy in the Lord would mean we wouldn't give a flying rip about whether I'm singing in tune or out of tune. The person next to me is just going to like it or lump it. If we were a comers you our church, I wonder how much weeping over the brokenness would grip our hearts. I wonder if we'd be calling on the elders more, calling on those who can pray, to pray for healing and for wholeness in our lives. 
Let me ask you this question. If we are to be that church that fulfills our God-given purpose to reach as many people as we possibly can with the gospel, it's going to take more than Simon. It's going to take every single one of us. That means we need to be actively engaged. And that active engagement is not about signing up for a program. By the way, just so you know, we're not going to get to the end of these four weeks and I'm going to give you a program to sign up to. I'm encouraging you to pray. I'm encouraging you to seek God and allow the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to melt our hearts. Last week, to break our hearts for lost people. This week, on the prayer sheet you've got in your seats, you'll see it here. Lord, now move my heart toward others. Might I be a person whose life is framed with compassion, who delivers grace and truth wherever I go, whoever I meet, that emblazoned across my head is that to every person, come as you are. And in my own life, that I will be someone who will always come as I am because that's the only way I can meet Jesus. We'll drop the mask, we'll drop the pretense, we'll be real. And so let's engage in prayer this week. And let's be people who will say, God, would you move my heart toward others? And you'll see in here that the question for the week is this. What attitudes lurk hidden in your heart that limit the expression of God's grace through your life? How do you view others? How do you view the world? Who is the enemy? Now, tomorrow morning, can I encourage you, take this, start praying verse by verse each day. And tomorrow morning, maybe your prayer goes something like this. God, thank you. You love the world so much that you gave Jesus your only son. Lord, would you help me to love the world like that? Would you help me not to be judgmental? Lord, would you examine my heart? Is there any judgmental, offensive way in me? And thank you, Lord, that you didn't condemn the world. Lord, help me to be filled with compassion, delivering grace and truth to people who so desperately need it. Lord, this is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe for you, a prayer like that is tomorrow morning. And as we go through this week, as we've done last week, allow the Holy Spirit to begin to soften us that we'll fulfill this wonderful commission he has for us. Would you bow your heads with me? In these next moments, before Tom comes and leads us in a worship response, Have a conversation, you and God. What's the Holy Spirit said to you this morning? Is there an attitude? Is there an apathy? Is there a sense that you have that if you were to look at your own life and say, where is my compassion level? Am I moved to see people as Jesus would see them? Am I moved in my heart to want to alleviate suffering and sin? And how do I do that? By introducing people to Jesus. By delivering that message with grace and with truth. 
Take a moment. Examine your heart. And then let's respond in worship.